you fraidy cats and kittens i'm whitley and i'm brian and this is deathly afraid mm. <laughs> uh, yeah it's been good starting to get busy at work again things are picking up and making time go by a lot faster right life has been crazy this week Right? I don't know why. How's your week been? Crazy. <laughs> <laughs> uh, just, you know, working. Lenny had his performance today, and he was the cutest little square dancer in the whole town. <laughs> he's probably super, like, meticulous when it came to learning it, too, so. Oh, he's been talking about it for, like, weeks, so. It was, it was pretty fun to watch. And then he taught it to me, so I got to dance with him. Nice. And I am quite the dancer. <laughs> I'm not really a dancer, but we had fun. That's what's important. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I wish they'd stop doing these school things in the middle of the dang day, though. Right? I it's weird because, like, when we lived in Arizona, it was always at night, and now that we're back in Idaho, it's like, oh, we're going to do it at 9 a.m. You can make it. <laughs> it's like, even when they went to the different school over by my parents' house, like, all the programs we went to that were there were like six o'clock at night, so parents had time to get off of work and right. be able to attend it. Yeah. Well, and then, like, it was kind of sad because obviously a lot of parents work and I'm lucky enough to have a job that I can, you know, say, hey, I'm coming in late. But there were a lot of kids that like when it was time to do the square dance, each kid went, got their parent or family member or whatever to teach them. Yeah. And there were a lot of kids that didn't have parents there, I'm assuming because they work. And I was just like, that's sad. Right. And so like teachers obviously stepped in. It was nice of them or whatever, but. I was glad that I could be there for Lynn. Yeah. <laughs> so. It probably made him happy. Oh, yeah. And he was so cute. In in his Christmas sweater for his... <laughs> for, <laughs> for his square dance. <laughs> it was cute. But, yeah. That was my week slash day. <laughs> well, should we jump right into it or... Sure, I don't have anything else that we need to talk about i don't think yeah me neither if i do i don't remember so okay my story i'm so excited to tell you about it because it's a little paranormal and true crime nice and it is crazy i had heard it like a while back 
And I've actually heard it on a couple different podcasts, um, Crime Junkies, and I believe, oh, you know who else did it? Um, Scared to Death. Okay. So Dan Cummins, yeah. he told the story. But um, I always thought it was super crazy, and I, I just really liked it. And then I remembered it the other day, and I was like, ooh, I'm going to do that one. Nice. So my story is about Teresita Bassa. Have you ever heard of her? Nope. Okay. This story is nuts. So it started on February 21st of 1977. Um, The Chicago Fire Department was dispatched to a fire in a nearby high-rise apartment building on Chicago's north side. Um, The building's janitor told the firemen when they arrived that one of the residents One of the residents on the 15th floor had reported smelling smoke. And the firemen, they go upstairs and to the 15th floor, obviously. And they quickly located the fire in apartment 15B. The apartment door was locked, but luckily the janitor had gone upstairs with them and was able to use his key to let them into the apartment. So they go in. They find the source of the fire in the bedroom, um, and it was the mattress had been pulled onto the floor, and it was just engulfed in flames. So, and it's like at the foot of the bed. So someone pulled the mattress off of the bed frame and then lit it on fire. That's weird. Right? So they put the fire out, and once, you know, all the smoke's clearing out, they open some windows or whatever, smoke clears out, and... Um, finally, they see the true horror of what actually happened. Lying under the mattress, covered by a pile of clothes, was the naked body of 47-year-old Teresita Bassa, with a butcher knife plunged through her chest. So, automatically, you know, it wasn't just like a fire and she died of smoke or whatever. Yeah. She had been murdered. Um... Once the fire department realized, you know, this isn't just a fire, it's a murder. So they, you know, back out of the scene and they call homicide detectives. But already they had, you know, sprayed everything to get the fire out. A lot of evidence is going to be gone. So police arrived and they searched the scene. But because Teresita lived alone, there's no way for them to really tell if anything was missing from the apartment. They had no idea. Um, they did find one neat, one neat, one neat, <laughs> one neat note. <laughs> <laughs> they found one note that Teresita had wrote to herself. Um, it said like in a journal or a diary, but I also heard, I, I think it was on Crime Junkie that I was listening to it. They kind of thought maybe it was like a planner that she wrote the note in, but everywhere else I seen it said diary. Um, so she writes this note to herself, uh, says, get tickets for AS. So they don't know who AS is or what it is, but they decide to take it anyway. Um, the police, because of Teresita's body and the position and everything, they ruled the case as a sexual assault and a murder. But when the autopsy comes back, it says that there are no signs of sexual assault. And, in fact, it showed that Teresita had never had sex before. Huh. So, just kind of weird. She's naked and murdered. and right. 
So they're kind of like, what even happened? So police start interviewing, you know, people who are close to Teresita, friends, family, um, but they're not really getting any leads. And the more people police talk to, the more they realize that everyone actually really loves Teresita and she's just like a great person. Couldn't imagine why anyone would want to hurt her. They find out, you know, she had moved here from the U.S. She had moved here from the U.S. <laughs> oh, my gosh. It's already starting. They find out Teresita had moved to the U.S. from the Philippines in the 1960s. So it was like a, about a decade before this happened. Um, she was a respiratory therapist at Edgewater Hospital. Um, she was a member of the Philippine aristocracy. Or, yep. Aristocracy. Aristocracy. That's what I was trying to say, but I can't do words. Um, she was a member of the Philippine aristocracy. Oh, you say it. Aristocracy. Now I can't say it. You're rubbing off on me. What? I did not. Um, aristocracy. Aristocracy. The Philippine aristocracy. I don't even know what that is. I don't either. So, um, I probably should have looked it up, but I did not. Um, she was also very involved in music, um, which was really her true passion. Uh, she spent a lot of her free time studying piano and teaching piano lessons. She was working toward her doctorate in music and was even writing a book. So she was just a really accomplished woman, really. Um, when interviewing one of Teresita's um, her friends or co-workers, her name was Ruth, um, said that she had actually talked to Teresita on the phone between 7.30 and 7.50 that night. And that Teresita had mentioned that she was expecting a man who was coming over to her house. But she didn't mention who the man was or why he was coming to visit her. So despite, you know, this tip and all their efforts police really had no evidence and the case was kind of at a standstill so for months there's literally no progress in finding the killer until one day police get a tip a surgeon named dr jose chua had called and wanted to speak with police about the murder of teresita bassa so, on August 5th, Detectives Joseph Statula and Lee Uplin head out to visit Dr. Chua and his wife, Remy, both of whom, like Teresita, are from the Philippines. And um, when the detective first arrives, the Chuas are acting pretty strange. Like, they're almost embarrassed to talk to them about the case. And eventually... Jose, he starts kind of talking, kind of standoffish about it, but he's like, okay, this is what's going on. He tells them that the story he's going to tell them is very bizarre and um, unbelievable. And he almost, like, he almost didn't come forward to the police in the first place. And the detective basically tells him, you know what, I'm a detective in Chicago. I I hear crazy things all the time. I see crazy things all the time. There's not much you can say that's going to surprise me. Yeah. Boy, was he surprised. <laughs> <laughs> so he told the detectives that 
There was a night several weeks prior to them calling him that his wife, Remy, wasn't feeling well and went to lay down in their room. And he went to check on her and she seemed very off and was just kind of staring off into space, like almost like in a trance-like state. Yeah. And so when he asked his wife if she was okay or what was going on, the voice that answered him was not Remy's voice. And the voice coming from his wife spoke to him in Tagalog. Tagalog. I can't say it. I looked it up. I had the pronunciation do it. Tagalog. Tagalog? I just can't. I'm not good at my... I'm not good at English words, you guys. Tagalog? Tagalog. Yeah. So... Um, but that, anyway, it was their native language. Oh my gosh. It was their language that they spoke in the Philippines. Yeah. Um, however, his wife, Remy, always spoke English to him. And he even mentioned that the voice had a weird, I believe it said Spanish accent to it. And his wife, when she spoke Tagalog, I don't think that's right. Tagalog. Tagalog. It's Tagalog. Now that I... Okay. So, um, yeah, when his wife spoke Tagalog, um, she didn't have that kind of an accent. So, um, the voice told them, Doctor, I would like to ask for your help. The man who murdered me is still at large. So, Jose asked the voice what its name was. What is your name? You know, and in Tagalog, she says, I am Teresita Basa. What the fuck? <laughs> like crazy, right? Right. Um, He did not know Teresita. At all. He didn't know about the murder. We find out that his wife, Remy, actually worked at the same hospital and they had seen each other, but they weren't. They didn't, or yeah, like yeah. they knew of each other, but weren't friends or anything, you know. Um, so he had never heard her name before and was just kind of like, what? you know, what's going on? So when his wife kind of snapped out of this trance, trance, he just kind of brushed it off and acted like nothing happened. And Remy had no recollection of it. She mm. didn't know that it happened. Like nothing. Possessed. Yeah. So then, two days later, it happens again. This time, Teresita tells him that a man had come into her home and stabbed her. And the man's name is Alan Showery. Like, get tickets for AS. Alan Showery. And she said when that Alan was a friend of hers and she let him into her home. So she knew this guy that murdered her, right? So the detective at this point is kind of like, mm, I want to, you know, see if he's telling the truth or whatever. So he tries to kind of poke holes in Jose's story to see if it's true. And he asks him, you know, did the voice mention anything about a sexual assault? So if you remember, it looked like a sexual assault. And that's kind of what the press is like. Oh, she was naked, whatever. And he's like, no, it didn't say anything about a sexual assault. And then he tells him, but it happened a third time. Right. Yeah. And the third time she was even more insistent. She's kind of like, dude, I've been here twice already. Like I asked you to go to the police. <laughs> Just do it. 
<laughs> so the third time, she's pretty insistent that Jose go to the police with the information that Alan Showery was her murderer. And Jose basically tells her, I can't just go to the police. I have no evidence. I have no proof. Yeah. You know, who's going to believe me saying that a ghost has come to me and said, this is my killer, you know? So, Sarasita was like, and I'll give you proof. And she told Jose that when Alan was at her apartment, he had taken some of her jewelry, which police didn't even know was missing. Yeah. You know? So, she even described described the jewelry to him. There was a pearl cocktail ring, which was an antique ring, and a jade pendant, which, um, from what I seen, like, they were both pretty um, unique pieces. Like, it wasn't like everyone and their dog's gonna have it type thing. Yeah. She told him that Alan had given these things to his girlfriend. So she even knew where you would find them. Um, Jose asked the voice, um, how will they know, you know, that it's your jewelry? And she says, my cousins Ron Samara and Ken Bossa could identify them. So could my friends Richard Pisodi and Ray King. And she even provided Ron's phone number to them. Dang. Right? She was like, I'm solving this murder. Right? You're going to find them. <laughs> and I'm even telling you who did it and where you can find them. So before she left for the last time, she said... Al came to fix my television, and he killed me, and he burned me. Tell the police. So, obviously, this is crazy, right? Yeah. If you're a police officer, and you're hearing someone tell you the story, and you're just... I would be like, okay, you know? Right. But, um, despite the bizarre story, detectives decided to follow up on this tip. Which I thought was kind of cool that they decided, okay, you know... But I guess, you know, they didn't really have anything else going for the case, so might as well. And, you know, AS, probably like, okay, it matches the note. Let's try it out. In a later interview, Detective Joseph Statula told author Adam Selzer, I talked to pimps, prostitutes, drug addicts in the Belmont area. Dr. and Miss Chua are educated, intelligent people who live in a $90,000 house. A distinct change for me. I wanted information on the murder. I listened, I listened and acted on what they told me. Which also, I wish houses were $90,000 now. Right. Let's go back to the 70s. <laughs> <laughs> but that's what I pulled out of that. No. So he was like, dude, I talked to... People telling me crazy things every day. These people are well-educated. I decided to go with it. Yeah. So, police decide to run a background check on Alan Showery. And they find out that Alan worked at the same hospital as Teresita and, and Remy. They were, so, Teresita and Remy are both respiratory therapists. And um, Alan, I think it said he was like an orderly or something like that. I don't really know 100%. Um, so Remy and Teresita, they're acquaintances through the hospital. And Teresita and Alan actually know each other pretty well. Alan only lived four blocks from Teresita's apartment. 
And they find out that Alan actually has a criminal record, but there's no convictions. So he's got several arrests for things like burglary, theft, and two sexual assaults. Which, granted, he didn't sexually assault her, but, you know. Um, So Alan would do odd jobs for Teresita, and she would actually tip him really well. And the police found out from acquaintances that... The night of Teresita's murder, Alan was actually supposed to go to Teresita's to fix her TV. So after everything, the detectives decide that, you know, yeah, we got this tip in a kind of a unorthodox way or whatever, but we're going to go investigate him. So they go to his house and they go there on August 11th and they tell Alan that, you know, we think he could help us with this investigation and ask him to come to the station and answer some questions. So when asked, he admitted to knowing Teresita and that he was supposed to go to her house that night of the murder. But he tells him that he never made it there. And he even said that he had never even been to Teresita's apartment. So um, he also claimed that, you know, I was home that night. Uh, we went to a friend's house for a little bit. I was drinking, hanging out. And so police goes, oh, okay, cool. Um, do you mind if we get some fingerprints from you to compare to prints that we found at the scene just to rule you out? Yeah. Obviously, I told you the firemen sprayed everything. There are no fingerprints. Yeah. But Alan quickly changed his story. And he's like, oh, you know what? I have been to Teresita's house, but it was it was so long ago. You know, long time ago. And then he's like, well, actually, you know what? I have been to Teresita's house, and in fact, I went there that night to fix her TV, but I forgot some of my tools, so I ended up going home. I was only there for a few minutes. A little sketchy, right? Um, so police decide to talk to Alan's girlfriend, Yonka, at this point. And she says that, yeah, she remembers the night of the murder. She remembers, like, all the sirens or whatever. She was out shopping... And Alan was at home. And when asked about him, you know, was he supposed to go fix Teresita's TV? She said, I don't even think he knows how to fix a TV. Like, I don't think he could fix a TV. So police asked, you know, okay, uh, has Alan given you any jewelry lately? And surprisingly, or not surprisingly, however you want to think of it, Alan had gotten her some jewelry back in February as a late Christmas present. Remember, Teresita died in February. Yeah. Okay. So, um, police are like, you know what? Why don't you just go get all of your jewelry, everything you own, even, you know, not just those things that he gave you, but everything. Yeah. And bring it in here so we can, you know, check it out. So, as she's getting her jewelry gathered, they call Teresita's family members that, you know, Jose had mentioned that would be able to identify her jewelry and have them come to the station. So, Yanka comes into the station and police notice that she's actually wearing an antique pearl cocktail ring, just like the one that Jose had described. Um, when Teresita's family members arrive, they immediately confirm, you know, yeah, that's her ring and that's that jade pendant necklace. That's hers too. 
Um, so police are like, hey, Alan, what about this jewelry? And he's like, oh, I got those at a pawn shop, but I don't have the receipt. Uh, can I talk to my girlfriend? <laughs> so when he finally is able to see her, he said, this is a quote from him uh, when he talked to her, obviously. He said, honey, I'm very sorry, but our relationship is over. We've had a great seven years, but I am responsible for Miss Boss's death. I don't want you to wait for me because I'm not coming back. I want you to sell the furniture and make a good life for our child. So he's confessing. He's like, I did it. I'm going to jail. Wait for me. I'm not, you know, I'm going to be a while. He told the police the story that Jose had told them about the TV was true. And he was low on money, so instead of fixing Teresita's TV, he planned to rob and kill her. So, in the, like I said, in the past when um, he had done other odd jobs for Teresita, she always tipped very generously. Yeah. So, he just assumed she had a lot of money. So, he told police Teresita let him in. And when she turned around to lock the door, he wrapped his arm around her throat until she passed out. At which point he undressed her and began to stage the scene of a sexual assault. So then he grabs a butcher knife and stabs her in the chest, pulls the mattress on top of the body, and sat it, sat it, set it on fire to cut it all up. Which, if Teresita wasn't a badass, he would have got away with it. Right. So after he does all this, he grabs. The jewelry that he gets caught with and the only cash that he could find. Guess how much cash you got away with, Brian? You already looked at it, didn't you? <laughs> $30. He killed her for two pieces of jewelry and $30. He didn't even get rid of the jewelry to get money for it. Right. Because, I mean, he's hard up for money. Obviously, he thinks he needs it that bad to murder someone. $30. Ridiculous. So he signs a written confession, um, but when it comes to court, Alan decides to plead not guilty. He claims that his confession was coerced, and detectives told him that if he didn't confess, they were going to put his pregnant girlfriend in prison as an accessory to the murder. So Alan's lawyers try to convince the ju judge, you know, drop the charges, saying that. There's literally no physical evidence. And this is a quote from Swano. Okay. Never to my knowledge has a man been arrested because of supernatural vision. Police never before been informed of a criminal's name by a voice from the grave. The judge decided that they were going to proceed with the case. And he said, I see no reason to restrict the investigatory power of the police, whether they believed in the voice or not. And the voices or not, they had to check it out. So basically, like, yeah, the tip was kind of weird, but they still had to check it out. Yeah. Then a spokesperson for the prosecutor's office told the Washington Post, it's not like we're going to cross-examine the voice or anything of that nature. We really, we're really not interested in the supernatural aspect of this trial. The voice was the initial tip, but the evidence was developed independently. Yeah. So, yeah, we got this tip, but everything after that was real investigation, you yeah. know. 
According to Mysterious Chicago, Showery's lawyers tried to suggest in court that the Chua's were the real killers and that they had sold Showery's Showery the jewelry, which explained why Yonka had it, and then came up with the possession after losing her job at the hospital. So Remy and Showery did work together. And so they kind of think, you know, it's possible that uh, Remy had a grudge against Showery because it was reported that he actually made complaints about her quality of work. So, you know, his legal team's like, no, she was mad. She made this whole thing up because he complained against her and she lost her job. Yeah. And she's the real killer, you know? So, with all that, the jury couldn't agree whether they believed Alan was guilty or not, leaving the judge to declare a mess- mistrial and order a second murder trial. So, before the second murder trial even began, Alan decided that he was going to plead guilty, and the judge sentenced him to 14 years for murder and four years each for armed robbery and Robbery? Robbery. Four years each for armed robbery and arson. Alan only served six of those years in prison before he was released, and he actually went on to live a pretty quiet life, and like not really much is known about him beyond that. So, you know, hasn't been arrested again. So that's cool. Huh. I guess. That we know of. Um... And the Chua's actually went on to write a book called A Voice from the the Grove. Nope. They went on to write a book called A Voice from the Grave. And the case was actually, this case was actually featured on Unsolved Mysteries. I think it said it aired in like the 90s sometime. I can't remember. I should have put it in my notes. Um, And Teresita's body was sent back to the Philippines to be buried at Dumaguete. Roman Catholic Cemetery in Dumaguete City, Negros Oriental Province, Central Visayas, Philippines. It was a lot of words. It was a lot of words. <laughs> and that is one place. <laughs> so, that is how Teresita Bassa solved her own murder case. That's insane. Right? And the fact that he only served six years. Right, yeah, that was kind of a bummer, but I don't know. I guess he could have served a lot less if she wouldn't have. Yeah, he could have served nothing. Yeah. Because police weren't going to find anything. No. There's no physical evidence. So, crazy story, right? That's crazy. I thought it was freaking insane. Like, at the beginning, like, when you're, like, this... True crime and paranormal. I was thinking, like, maybe a ghost killed somebody or something. So I was like, like hey, why not? I'm not find anything because the ghost stabbed her. <laughs> nope. The ghost solved the mystery. That was a pretty good story. You liked it. I was, I was pretty excited to tell you. <laughs> so, have you got a story for me, sir? I do have a story for you. Tell me about it, stud. So, what I'm going to talk about this week is, um, I'll probably do more different stories about 
is skin about skinwalkers. Oh, okay, cool. And so it was a a cool story I found on creepypasta.com. Ooh. That this um I like pasta. Me too. <laughs> and I like creepy things. Me and too. I like creepy pastas. <laughs> <laughs> so the story I found is one that this guy had submitted that his dad had told him about him and his father and their experience with a skinwalker. So if you don't know what a skinwalker is, in Navajo culture, a skinwalker is a type of harmful witch who has the ability to turn into, possess, or disguise themselves as an animal. <laughs> well, like Paul? Holly just bowed right after he stopped talking. <laughs> he was like, Holly, you're not a skinwalker, are you? Yep. Hold on. Let me let him out. Was this for a second? All right. So I'm going to go ahead with the story. It seems like a super long one. Um, seems like it. Yeah. It was, you didn't read it? Well, I read it, but it, like, it was while I was at work on lunch and stuff. So it was. <laughs> anyway. Tell me the story. We were out hunting one night in the woods surrounding the dairy farm in Ohio where we lived at the time he'd tell me. We were tracking coyotes. We'd kill them for 50 bucks a skin. They'd kill calves sometimes. We'd do it every night because we needed the money. Sometimes while we were out, we'd come on a deer and kill it. Our landlord didn't mind, and it could feed our family for a few nights and save us some money. Anyway, we were done making our rounds and heading home, walking because we didn't have a car or four-wheeler back then. We'd cut through the woods. That's when we came upon it. Blood everywhere, splattered on the trees, in the grass, in the creek, everywhere. At first, we figured it was a pack of coyotes. We'd seen how sometimes, when they weren't able to scavenge for whatever reason, they'd start hunting deer or cattle out of desperation. The worst was when they bred with feral dogs, but this wasn't like that. You see, when a pack of dogs, wolves, or coyotes attack something, they do it right. They'll pick off one that's weak, sick, or old, or just small. They'll hunt it, draw it into a corner, someplace it can't get out of, and they'll run it right to the biggest one, the alpha. And that deer will never see that alpha. It might hear it, but it won't see it. All of a sudden, its throat will be torn out, and it'll drop dead. It's quick and it's clean. That wasn't what happened here. Something had come up upon a group of deer. Coyotes won't attack a group. Wolves wouldn't either. They'd get too much of a fight. There were three, I think, three bodies just torn apart. You'd see a head or a torso. Or, or so. Toso? You'd see a head or a torso here, a leg there. Predators don't do that. They don't leave scraps behind. Whatever had done this hadn't done it for food. It had done it for fun. But we didn't know that at the time, of course. We just saw a bunch of carcasses and figured it's something we had to take care of. I remember my dad telling me to go home that he thought it was the work of a pack of feral dogs. But I wasn't leaving him, and I damn sure wasn't hiking through two miles of woods alone in the dark with nothing but a twenty-two and a pocket knife. I was Same. Only, right? 
I was only 13 at the time, so a 22 rifle was the only gun I could reliably use. Could you imagine being out in the dark in the woods and telling Creed, go back nope. by yourself? <laughs> no, because I, like, I remember when I was way close to that age, and you've heard the story, when we were up deer hunting one year and my parents had to go home, so I stayed up with our friends who had kids our age and we were out hunting and I had shot my deer. Me and our friend went and found it and we had told their brothers, drive down and we'll just walk straight down and meet you at another road. Well, by the time we found my deer and got it drugged down to the road, it was like pitch blackout and it was just the two of us. Oh, that would be and scary. And all we had was our bows. And so apparently the road we were on, you couldn't get to. Some like a gate was closed or something. They couldn't get to that. And so we had to walk. I don't know how far it was, but it seemed really far in the dark. And I know both of us were like scared to death, like looking around and you just see like eyes like glaring back at you and stuff. Right. And you don't know what it is. Well, I mean, and up there there's bears, there's wolves, there's coyotes, there's mountains. I would be wrapping my pants. Right. So I, I, I can understand where this kid's coming from. Right. Like, uh, no, I'll stay here. You're like, no, daddy, I'll stay. If we both, <laughs> if one of us goes, we're both going. <laughs> so dad, his dad had the shotgun and I wasn't going anywhere without it or him. It took me a while to convince him, but finally we began tracking whatever did that. It wasn't hard either. We just followed the blood. Either that thing bled a deer before it got away or it dragged one for a mile i don't know what i do know is that i've never seen my dad scared before that night which i would be scared as well so i would also be scared yeah so we started hearing the most horrible sounds now i've been in a lot of woods in my life and i've been all over the world but i ain't but I ain't never heard noises like I heard that night. I ain't never heard it. <laughs> right? I heard things screaming. I heard deer, fox, rabbits, raccoons, and birds, all of them afraid of something and hightailing it. That's also kind of weird to hear birds at night, unless it's like an owl or something, right? like a nocturnal. Yeah. So, keep in mind, this is maybe 12 or 1 o'clock in the morning. Except for the fox and some birds, nothing was supposed to be awake at that hour. But they weren't just awake, mind you. They were on the run. That night, I saw flocks of birds flying straight into trees trying to escape something. We came upon a pack of coyotes and nearly shot a couple, thinking they had their eyes on us. But then we saw they were running from someone, not toward us. They didn't even notice us and went right past. Oh, dang. I would be like, I got to turn around and go the other way. Right. If a pack of coyotes just run right past you, I would turn around and run with them. Right. <laughs> so then some deer did the same. Then some rabbits, squirrels, and foxes. Even a couple wild hogs. These critters were supposed to be hunting each other. And the only thing they cared about was getting as far away from there as possible. Why the heck are they still going the opposite direction of these right? animals? 
It seems kind of crazy to me. But I'd, I'd be like, bye. It's kind of like how you hear like in Yellowstone when there's going to be like a natural disaster and all the animals like yeah. vacate. They know something's going on. Why are you not also vacating the area? Yeah. So <laughs> Trust them. They we, know. We should have put two and two together that yeah, maybe whatever we were tracking wasn't something we were supposed to see and wasn't something we could kill. To this day, I don't know why we didn't just go home. I guess we were curious. I think that was my dad's nature to go toward trouble to fight. Your dad's a dingus. Right? And being aware of the things my father did during the war, I figured it was best to stay by his side. We finally reached an open valley. It was normally a soy field, but it wasn't in season, so it was just flat dirt. That's when we saw the tracks. Animals fleeing the forest had leveled everything in their path. But where that deer blood was, nothing had taken a single step. It was like whatever was responsible had left it for us to find. The tracks were shallow. Whatever it was, couldn't have weighed more than 100 pounds, but that didn't mean much. Bobcat weighing 40 pounds, soaking wet, can tear out your throat if you ain't careful. The fact this thing was on the lighter side just meant it was probably quick and was going to be tough to hit. So we followed the tracks, and it didn't take us long to find where they led. There's an old schoolhouse that sits on the top of a hill. Half of it had been ripped out by a tornado, but nobody lived there, not for a long time. I would hope not, if it was half ripped apart by a tornado. Right? Well, and didn't it say it was a schoolhouse? Why would you yeah. live there? Maybe it was like... Well, I guess we seen that one yesterday that I was like, man, I want to go in there. Yeah. It was like a schoolhouse turned house. I was like, it looks haunted. Right. We need to go knock. <laughs> Obviously, we did not because somebody lived there. Yeah. So, sometimes we caught homeless people in there or drug addicts looking for a safe place to shoot up. We figured maybe that was it. Maybe it was some sick kid riding a high, but we didn't think that for long. When we got to within 50 yards, we heard a noise. A sort of screech made up of two different sounds. One was high-pitched, and another was a low growl. It was making both sounds at the same time, if that makes any sense. We approached to within 20 yards, and we heard another sound, different this time. I remember thinking that it sounded like paper being torn apart while someone was swinging water back and forth in a bucket. Which is an odd sound, I guess. Yeah. I'm just going to sit here and <laughs> swing this water around. That is a little bit weird. So, Dad looked at me, knelt down, and whispered. He told me I had to stay behind him because we're about to corner our prey. Any animal will fight when it's cornered, especially a predator. But we can tell by the tracks that there's only one. He tells me it's probably a single, feral dog, most likely rabid. The plan, he said, was to sneak up on it while it was eating, shoot it, and then keep shooting it till it didn't move anymore, then slit its throat. Oh my gosh. Yeah. And if it got to Dad, it was my job to shoot or stab it to get it off him. So, I need you to jump on this thing and stab it, son. Right? So he walked up. With me right behind him, just a tad to his side, so I can see what it is. 
I wish to this day I hadn't. It was leaning over a carcass, tearing off its flesh, and throwing what it didn't nibble at aside. There was blood all over the brick, glistening in the moonlight. Ooh. It was pale white and looked like looked a little like a man, but not quite human. It had arms and legs like ours, but it sat like a monkey hunched over. And its hands weren't normal. It had long fingers with claws at the end. So we saw that, and my dad hesitated. He wasn't about to fire at a person, so he cleared his throat to try and get it to turn around. I swear to God Almighty, all the noise just seized in an instant. I ain't ever heard true silence before that, and never again afterward. But for two seconds, nothing made any noise. And I mean nothing. This made it all the louder when that thing turned around, made this shrill cry, and pounced on Dad. Oh, no. Yeah. Run, so Daddy, run! He got a shot off. I think he missed. If he hit it, it didn't phase the thing at all. But it was on him, tearing entire parts of him off. What? I started shooting it with the twenty-two point blank, with the thing barely bled at all. I got off five rounds. And then I started hitting it with the butt of the gun. It didn't budge or even register that I was there. It was clawing at my dad, removing whole chunks of his flesh. It started on his torso, peeling off the skin on his chest, and then it moved up. It tore out his throat, ripped his nose clean off, and gouged his eyes, or gouged out his eyes. Then it scalped him and started digging in. Ryan, no! This is gross. I stood there helpless as it ripped off the bottom half of his jaw, Mm. the little bones, and that tube in his neck, and then his ribs. What the hell? I don't exactly remember what happened, but somehow my dad's knife ended up in this thing's shoulder, and my dad, what was left of him, that is, ended up on my back. I was running... And by God, I was going faster than I'd ever run before or after. And it was following me. I ended up back in the forest opposite the woods we started in. I was heading towards my landlord's house because it was the closest thing to help nearby. But even that was a half mile away. All the while, I could hear the thing screeching and moaning. I heard branches cracking and getting thrown around. It was cracking so loud and often that it sounded like someone was taking an axe to every single tree I passed. But I never looked back, not once. The thought didn't even cross my mind. Finally, I tripped and fell into some gravel. I looked up to see my landlord and a bunch of his buddies drinking around a campfire. I screamed and cried, and they came over. I told them to call an ambulance, and my landlord looked at me and said, Something I'll never forget. What is that on your back? He asked me. Just as the words left his mouth, it dawned on him without saying a word. It was one of those god-awful flannel shirts my dad wore everywhere, he realized. And it was damn near all that was left of my dad. Aside from a bit of my father's head and torso, that's all there was. Absolutely nothing below the waist. Suddenly... Mm, This is so gross. Go ahead. (laughs) <laughs> continue sickening me out. Just the mat. Like, 
not even only seeing this crap happen, but like. I'm just glad we didn't eat dinner before. I'm glad we decided to do this before we ate dinner. (laughs) Thank you, Brian. So suddenly we heard it, the screeching. My landlord grabbed me, causing me to drop what's left of dad on the ground. And I was fighting him crying because I thought we could still save him somehow. Oh, that's so sad. But the truth is, my dad had been gone well before I ever picked him up. And all I'd done was carry a corpse back home. My landlord had to pick me up and throw me inside before I would go with him. He and his buddies, all of us went inside together and they locked the doors and got their guns. The landlord asked me, what happened? What happened? But I didn't know what to tell him. He pieced enough of it together to understand that there was something dangerous out there. All the lights in the house were on and someone called the cops. They would get there as soon as they could, they said, but that Went in 15 minutes. We looked outside and saw it walk in front of the fire they'd made. No one knew what it was. One of them said it looked like an ape. Suddenly, something came crashing through the window. We all fired at it, but quickly realized it wasn't the thing. No, it was my landlord's dog. Well, his body. Oh, no, not the dog. Well, his body, anyway. His head's... Head and legs were missing. What? It was just the dog. Oh, person. no. Yeah. Like, threw it like a football? I guess. Oh. Tight spiral. <laughs> Poor Fido. Right? So, we had just started pushing things in front of doors and windows to form a barricade when we heard something in the garage. I remember one of his friends saying that the doors were open. We heard metal and glass being ripped and smashed. We dragged the couch and TV in front of the door to the garage for added measure. It banged around some more, but then it got quiet. Not silent like it was before. We could hear it move around some, and the guys were talking, making sure their guns were ready. Someone handed me a pistol. No sooner had I cocked the hammer back when we heard something shatter upstairs. Then we heard it screech again, except this time it was louder, and it didn't echo and fade out because it was inside. Oh, no. We all rushed up to the one door that led upstairs, and we got to it just as that thing did. It opened it just a bit, and four or five men just slammed into it. It managed to get its hand through. Someone with a shotgun took care of that, put the barrel right up to its wrist, and pulled the trigger. Blew its hand clean off. That only pissed it off, though. It started shoving that door, clawing. We were on one side, pushing as best we could, and it was on the other side, doing the same. The wood wasn't going to hold, so someone told us to keep our heads down. Suddenly, the top half of the door was gone and my ears were ringing. There were splinters everywhere. Two or three of them had just unloaded on the top of the door. I don't really know where it went after that. The police got there. I was still glued to what was left of the door. The sun was up before they pried me loose. They put me in a hospital for a while. While I was there, a whole lot of people talked to me, but I didn't respond. Not for a long, long time. When I got back home, 
I got a job for the landlord working on the farm. I would never want to go back to the farm. Right? We didn't talk much, not about the thing. But I signed up for the army when I was 19, and he sat me down to drink some scotch as a send-off. I asked him right away what the police told him. The story they went with was that it was a wild animal, probably a wolf or maybe a bear, that had migrated north. I asked him how they could say that when they had the hand that got shot off. He looked at me stunned. He told me that the hand never made it back to the station. The cop who had it in his car got into a wreck, drove into a tree, and died on impact. What the heck? The hand was never found, likely taken by an animal, they say. The cops, when they would acknowledge the hand existed at all, said it was simply the paw of a bear that resembled a man's. What? Yeah. <laughs> I never talked to the landlord again. He went missing while I was in basic training, and no one ever saw him again. There were rumors that he owed some people some money and skipped town, but I don't think it's that simple. As for me, I never went back to those woods. I wouldn't even if I had the whole U.S. Army at my back. That was the extent of what my father told me about the incident in the woods. Okay, so he was telling the story that his father, his father heard told, told him. About him and his father. Okay. So his father and grandfather's story. Okay. That was disgusting. Right? But it was very interesting. <laughs> that Oh my gosh. Could you imagine though? No. So I think you need to do an episode on like skinwalkers like like the lore behind them like how they become skinwalkers or whatever because you said it was like a navajo thing yeah. witches or whatever you should do an episode on that i think that'd be really interesting cool. i like that I idea have to do a lot of research on that though yeah yeah it's, yeah i and think it's it'd be interesting though to crazy hear enough. the background on it yeah 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 that was my story that, you were right. That was a long story. I couldn't even believe it. But I liked it. It was it's good. It was, crazy. There were times that I was like, I didn't want to hear that. <laughs> like when I read the story earlier, it was like I was trying to picture everything in my head like as it went down. It was just Right. So you said you found that on Creepypasta. Did you say who submitted it? or? Um, I don't remember. Let me double check that. Mm. So credit Max Minton. Cool, man. It was submitted to creepypasta.com by a fellow reader. Nice. It's actually a neat website. Like, for if you're into reading, like, scary stories and stuff like that. Right, yeah. Nice. Yeah. I like it. So, one thing we forgot to say at the beginning is the day this episode comes out, it's Easter. Yeah. Which not everybody celebrates Easter. We get that. But my family does a big Easter egg hunt that the adults are involved in. And it gets crazy. It gets nuts, you guys. My parents hide money eggs all over. Like my mom has like two acres and they hide money eggs. And when I say money eggs, yeah, there's dollar eggs. But there's also $5 eggs, $20 eggs, $10 eggs. And there is a $50 egg. And we all get nuts. 
everybody fights to find where that one is, and it's usually the hardest one to find. Oh, yeah. They don't make it easy to find the $50 egg. Lennon ended up finding it last year. Yeah, yeah. I've yet to find it. I don't think I found it either. Right? So... It's on this weekend, family. It's on. It's on like Donkey Kong. So, anyway, I liked your story. You kind of got a double paranormal this week with a hint of true crime. It's not really paranormal. It's, it's yeah. scary. Paranormal. Yeah, weird things. Hard to believe things. Yeah. <laughs> um. Yeah, so that was our episode this week. You didn't have anything else, right? I just kind of was like, this was our episode. We're done. We done. Get over it, people. We hungry. We hungry. Feed me. <laughs> now that you got to hear about people getting torn apart and dogs thrown through windows. And... Right. Oh, that was the saddest part. No, there was a lot of sad parts. I just pictured Minnie's little body coming in here, and I'd be so sad. Right. I mean, if it was Luna, I'd be like, you forgot some of her. Come take the rest. I'm just joking. I sound so mean. I do like Luna. She's just an idiot. That is true. Um, so, yeah. That's our story this week. I hope you guys all have a great Easter. If you don't celebrate Easter, happy damn Sunday. Hope you have a great one. As always, like our podcast. Rate our podcast, review our podcast, and share our podcast. Share our podcast. Um, if you have a story you want to submit or a um, suggestion, you can email us at deathlyafraidpod at gmail.com. You can follow us on Facebook at Deathly Afraid Podcast. Or join our Facebook group, Deathly Afraid Podcast. On a Facebook. I think you said Facebook twice. What? I said Instagram. Are you sure? I said twice. I said you can follow us on Instagram at Deathly Afraid Podcast, or you can follow our Facebook group. Okay. Maybe I don't know. Um, Random no sheet. And then when I go edit this and I see Facebook two times, I will be mad. <laughs> I don't even know what that was. What I have no idea. Anyway, thank you guys for listening again. We appreciate our listeners. 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 And yeah, have a great damn week. Bye. Bye.